This episode of Talk of the Devils is sponsored once more by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit 1 million orders phase. Yep, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling ETH style turtleneck sweaters or blueprints for brand new stadiums, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to Talk of the Devils, you can sign up for our $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash reddevils, all in lowercase without any spaces. So go to shopify.com slash reddevils to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash reddevils. The Athletic. This is Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. And we're here to talk about quite a lot, to be honest. On the pitch, it's one of the most exciting weeks that Manchester United have had in years. And off the pitch, well, it's probably one of the most eventful and controversial times in recent years as well, to be fair. We're going to talk about the win over Leicester that's got Manchester United and the T-word being linked again. We're going to preview, of course, the second leg, the huge Europa League playoff against Barcelona. And of course, we'll also cover comprehensively the very latest on the takeover bids for Manchester United because since we last spoke on Thursday, a lot has happened. Yes, indeed. Right, let's introduce you to our merry men today. Then we've got the band, the full band back together. We've got Andy Mitten, who if he sounds better today, you'll understand he has just realised how to use his microphone. Andy, how long have you had the microphone for? About two years. Wow. Well, you do sound fantastic, mate. So lovely to have you on in very clear audio. Carl Anker, hello to you as well. Hiya, mate. How you doing? Yeah, very good. Thank you. And Laurie, hello to you too. How are you doing? Nice to have you back here. Yeah, nice to be back as well. Right, let's get into Leicester then. Carl and Laurie, you were both there. So Carl, I'll start with you. You've written about Eric Ten Hag being in charge of Manchester United in every sense of that phrase and another impressive display from Eric Ten Hag's team. Yeah, first half, not so good. Second half, very good. Uh, Ten Hag called the opening 45 as rubbish. Um, I agree. But there were two or three times in the second half where I probably shouldn't have done this, but I was applauding when Manchester United were were putting some phases of play together. In the last 10 minutes, there were two or three phases where United fans were going, ole, as United players exchanged the ball in the final third, uh, which also caused ironic chance from Leicester City fans when they won the ball back, where they go, we've got the ball back because... That's what Manchester United can do now. Not only are they good at scoring on counter-attacks and creating chances, but they can also keep the ball away from teams for two, three minutes at a time. This is Ten Hag football. They don't do it from minute one to minute 90, but they're getting able to play it for longer periods of time and it is looking really nice. Yeah, as you've written on The Athletic, the pieces up there at the moment, Eric Ten Hag has got control of this team and it's showing on the pitch every single game now. We're hoping it's going to show on Thursday against Barcelona after his Andy Mitten-esque rallying cry towards the end of that game against Leicester. But Laurie, what stood out to you from that game? Because Carl's right, Tenard called the first half rubbish. Um, David De Gea was United's best player, in fairness, in that first half. But they looked absolutely devastating in that second period. 
I think when you've got a player like Marcus Rashford having the kind of season that he's having, and we probably need to have a conversation at some point about where this ranks if it, if it keeps on. I mean, he's already got his best ever scoring season personally, but where it ranks set against other great individual seasons by other players, you know, you're talking like Robbie Van Persie or, or Wayne Rooney, that kind of calibre. And obviously... those need silverware, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's where I was going. Yeah, Ian, if you'd let me finish my point. Um, Sorry, Laura. They both obviously ended Good in the titles, back, yeah. <laughs> which we'll perhaps get onto. But So I think, and he was kind of just, you could see he was on the shoulder of the Leicester defence the whole time. And whilst United were on the ropes, there was always that out ball wasn't there to him. And eventually Bruno Fernandes struck it perfectly. He timed it really well. Um, and obviously second goal as well was, was timed really well with with the offside. And it kind of reminds you that actually there was a period in his career when he wasn't really great at staying onside in those key moments. So it's it's good to see he's obviously you know working on that. So I think he, he was the, the standout in, in that even though when United have been on, against the ropes a little bit, he's been that kind of guy that you can look at and go, he, he's going to do something here. And I also thought Wout Vergost as the number 10 again. I mean, I thought that was like a, a, a tailored, bespoke plan for Barcelona when actually he seems like, you know, let's get him in there again. He still can't score. He, he's getting chances, um, but he is kind of having an effect. It's kind of fun to watch, right? He's is it? creating space for others. He's he's pressing, he's tackling. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, he's tackling, yeah. Um, I think he made more tackles in the first half than anyone else. And obviously, uh, Ten Hag switched it around for the start of the second and it had that brilliant impact. This is one thing, Andy, that he keeps doing, actually. He keeps making changes that come off and work. United have got more goals in the Premier League from the bench than any other team. Um, and the way that he sees the game and reads the game just seems to be a real feature of Manchester United season. Yep, it's not been a strong point of Manchester United in recent years, the in-game management. The best example yesterday was Jadon Sancho coming on for Alejandro Garnacho at half-time. Then he scored United's third goal after an hour. It was, I thought it was a brilliant goal. But great to see Jadon Sancho playing well. He scored home and away against Leicester this season, running at goal, um, trying to set up uh, Valt Vegost. It just looked like his confidence was back. And another player I think we should mention who, who didn't come off the bench was Bruno Fernandes, set up a couple. And with Christian Eriksen not being in the team, he's becoming the assist king. So if you've got a few players doing really, really well, um, Sancho, Fernandes, Rashford, then, yes, United rode the luck in them first 20 minutes, where Leicester were really good going forward, pulling that defence left and right. I was really impressed by Leicester. I thought it'd be a tough game, but the way which United responded, Marcus Rashford full of confidence, taking his chances, Old Trafford is on it. It just feels a really good time to be a Manchester United fan. So much anticipation, excitement off that great game at Barcelona, then you can sort of cover for the fact that Garnacho didn't really do much or there's other players who who were struggling uh, because you're not going to have a game where all 11 are firing all the time. So they get the chances, but when they're not performing, Eric Tenag makes the changes and he's pretty decisive and he's usually correct. Yeah, he has been in recent weeks, no doubt about it. Let's go back to Marcus Rashford for a moment. I sort of understood what you were saying, Laurie, in terms of you know how, how good this period of form is. And it tends to help when landmarks are hit during that period of form as well. I mean, he's 
obviously equaled Dennis Violet's record for scoring in consecutive games at Old Trafford. He's on seven now consecutive games in the Premier League of scoring at Old Trafford, which I think the record is 10, which Cristiano Ronaldo set a few years ago. The fact that this run has helped him break his own individual record, he's now scored 24 goals in a season in all competitions for the very first time, gives it a headline. A piece of silverware at the weekend would help as well and helping to knock Barcelona out of the Europa League this week would also help too, of course. But the background to this, Carl, is the contract situation. David Ornstein's written about it on The Athletic. You can go and have a read of that if you want the very latest on it. But it is crucially important now, isn't it, that Manchester United get him signed up to a brand new contract. And that is the way to cap this period of form, isn't it? Absolutely. Not just from Manchester United, but also I think Rashid himself is probably quite eager to to get everyone around the table and, and go, all right, where's your pen? Let's have a big chat about this and where his position will be in regards to the highest earning players. <clears throat> Sorry, I had a bit of a cold last week. Where's your Cavonia? It's normally on tap next to you, isn't it? Right here, my friend. Right here. Go on then, have a go. <laughs> uh, where his position is in the dressing room in terms of the highest earning players as well. I think that's probably in Rashford's thinking. Like you say, this is, you know, he's, this is best ever season. It's now 16 goals in these last 17 games. He, he is the informed player in Europe. I will admit, when he was in for the first goal, part of me go went square it to Garnacho, and then he just <sighs> you had to look up, didn't he, Carl? Nah, just smash when it in that, the far when, corner. When you're in that form, why would you square it? Absolutely, and I think I, I listened obviously to the podcast on Thursday. I wasn't on it, but I think Rashford is world class at the moment. I think that performance in the camp now showed you the level that he's at. I think Laurie used the words of it was essentially his playground on Thursday night. You know, if he's doing that at a ground like that against a team who were well clear in, in La Liga, one of the the most you know high profile best leagues in Europe, however you want to term it, that he's world class, isn't he? I think so. And and I think then you start maybe it's too soon, but you start thinking about end of season awards a little bit. And I know that might sound crazy when you've got Erling Haaland scoring a, a phenomenal rate, but actually it, de- it depends what happens, doesn't it, in the last few sort of months of the season as to how much of an influence Rashford has on uh, Man United's uh, season, you know, success. Um, but I do, I think he's in that kind of conversation now. And yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of other other forwards that are doing what he's doing right now. He's there's there's few, you know. It, it feels like you know, like Liverpool had, you know, with Mane, um, just that kind of. Oshiman probably is the high-profile one. Victor Oshiman from Napoli. Yes, he is a striker that is always on a number of shortlists for Man United, and I think Laurie mentioned would cost more than a hundred million to bring to United if such a thing happened. Which also says, you know, if Oshiman and Rashford have similar goal-scoring tallies, then Marcus Rashford's going for how much in this market right now? Got a year left in the summer, so yeah, the, the value probably is getting closer to. Um... A, a number that you know other clubs might try and tempt United with. Nothing, Carl. He's not going for anything in this market. <laughs> What's the latest on the contract, Andy? Then just to round it off, Marcus is a Mancunian Manchester United fan. I'm sure he'd like to play in successful Manchester United sides, and would feel that his talents would be fitting and up to a standard to do that. Um, the people around him have never been slow to or shy to speak to other suitors over the years. Twice having spoke to Barcelona, I think they will get as much as they can. As Laurie said, uh, and as Carl said about uh, 
where his wages will be in relation to others. If he came out now and said, I should be the best paid player at Manchester United, would that be an outrageous thing for him to say? I think he's having an incredible season and it's really good to see. Uh, I think there's a little bit of uncertainty um, because we don't know who the future owners of Manchester United are going to be. So it's all right people at the club saying everything just proceeds as normal. Uh, I'm sure that contract negotiations um, will proceed, but there's still the uncertainty of you don't know who's going to be in charge of the club. Yeah, and you don't know who's going to be paying those wages in the future, do you? Which I guess is a consideration exactly. more for Marcus Rashford uh, than anyone else. Of course, the very latest on this will be on The Athletic. Keep your eyes peeled for that. And also you can go and read the lads' takes on that victory over Leicester on there at the moment as well. Remember, if you're not a subscriber, there is a special podcast price of £1.99 a month when you subscribe at theathletic.com forward slash Pod. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Okay, let's get into the very latest then on the potential takeover of Manchester United. I'm not exactly sure where to start because so much has happened since we last spoke on Thursday. Uh, We've had obviously bids that we know about. There's potentially bids that are going on in the background as well. There's lots of different people involved. Um, I think the place to start, Laurie, if we can, and you've written about it on The Athletic, is the Qatari interest in Manchester United. Um, The reaction has been quite something, hasn't it? Yeah, it feels very um, divisive out there. I mean, this is social media, so maybe that's what you get in, you know, 240 characters or however many you're allowed now on Twitter. Um, And nuance is a difficult thing to find sometimes. So it feels like there's an overwhelming support for the Qatari bid on on Twitter, social media. Um, It seems it stems from the fact that they will provide lots of money. And that's what United need to get back challenging and have a better stadium and, and what have you. Um, yeah, I mean, so the the facts of it are that you've got Sheikh Jassim, who, let's be honest, no one had heard of before uh, this bid was announced. Um, but he is, uh, so his people tell us, a United fan. And there's a picture of him in a United shirt at a game uh, fairly recently. Uh, although it's, you know, the exact origins of that, I'm not too sure. Um, but he has got private wealth that he is willing to put into the club, clear the club of debt, take over the club 100%, um, which is another thing we can get into in terms of a, a difference with Sir Jim Ratcliffe and, and how that actually will work because it's it's not, you know, the Glazers' shares are up for sale. It's not actually the whole 
club at this particular moment. But the Qatari 69%, bid, isn't it? Yeah, that's what that's what they've got at the moment. Um, so that which is enough for majority control, absolutely. Um, but the, the Saint Jassim is, is saying that you know he wants the, the full control. The interesting thing is that his father is very well known, very powerful guy. Sort of years ago uh, in Qatar, he was the former prime minister, very close to the former sheikh, uh, a guy called Sheikh Hamad. Um, so, and he was also called Sheikh Hamad. So, uh, people that uh, know about these these guys, sort of, they, they were called the two Hamads, basically. The Hamadine is, I think, one of the nicknames for them, and, and they were kind of a bit of a, a duo that looked at how Qatar could be bigger on the world stage. You know, they have all this wealth from uh, you know the the oil and gas reserves. Their idea was to not think in Chile, was to think wider than that and we've got a piece coming up I think from Matt Slater that, that looks into him more specifically his nickname is HBJ uh, Sheikh Hamad the father of uh, uh, Sheikh Jassim so he is you know we're told uh, a wealthy person I think he owns quite a lot of property in London quite a lot of property in New York so there's an idea that he does have this personal wealth but at the same time where does the wealth ultimately come from and you know the Qatari state has it's intertwined, isn't it, with any kind of private um, aspect of, of Qatari life. Sheikh Jassim is the chairman of the Qatar Islamic Bank, and that is a bank that has uh, investment in it from the uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund of Qatar. So, you know, you can see how, how this kind of all works. And I think, you know, we've heard from people before, we've reported about it, that the coming Emir of uh, Qatar has wanted, after the success of the World Cup, to get into the Premier League. And, you know, obviously Manchester United are the crown jewel in that. There is an explainer on the Athletic because it is a complicated setup. Um, the interest from Qatar because of all the different factions and the different people involved. Um, you've written as well, Laurie, with Matt Slater on that, but you've also written a piece which has dropped earlier on today about whether or not you know we should be scrutinising this and looking at the motives behind the the interest in Manchester United. Andy, you've already spoken about it publicly and felt the uh, feedback on that, shall we say? What's your thoughts on a, a potential Qatari takeover of Manchester United? Yeah, I spoke about it publicly. I was asked on, on television on Friday night and one of the first things I said was that uh, this will divide Manchester United fans and straight away had people calling me a disgrace saying it's not divided anybody. Everybody wants the Qataris to take over Manchester United. We know that's not true though, don't it's we? It's not true, but this is indicative of the abuse that's flying around, how entrenched people are and how divided people are, which was my original point. We saw the athletic survey, which we made comment to. On Saturday, I asked on my own Twitter, who do you want? And this was before the Elliot talk had, had come through and been written in the Sunday Times. Yeah, we'll get to that. 60,000 people voted. Uh, 66% preferred the Qatari option, about 26% Sir Jim Ratcliffe. On United We Stand, much smaller sample survey the results were basically the opposite. 75% wanted Sir Jim Ratcliffe. So anyone saying that they can speak for a consensus of Manchester United fans is completely wrong at the moment. And we can ask deeper questions. What are Manchester United fans? Who are Manchester United fans? And splits have become very apparent in recent days. Pretty unsavoury time, actually, um, given all the, the anger, all the emotion. The Qataris were, were actually approached for the first time 13 years ago at a time when the Red Knights group got together and it was the same people they approached. That didn't come to fruition. Now the Glazers have been uh, much more amenable to selling or at least getting some equity uh, from somewhere. We we do not know what is going to happen and it's a very uh, emotive uh, subject at the moment. I felt completely conflicted all weekend 
despondent at times, relieved that it looks like the Glazers are going. So you've got this whole mixture of, of opinions. And then a game of football broke out in the middle of it. And you're like, ah, oh, it's quite nice just to to watch that, not be abused just for giving very balanced interviews on television because you're not reinforcing exactly what people want you to tell them because you're not being a cheerleader of Group A or Group B. People trying to pull you into their camp. You're a disgrace for saying that, for not saying that. And that that's with balance. This is what the Glazers have done to Manchester United's fan bases. Laurie mentioned in his piece, a lot of good phrases in that piece. One of them was the prioritisation of wealth. For some people, it's just about money. Money, 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 nothing else matters. But this is the first takeover attempt of the social media age. So I can remember really well um, uh, in 1998 when B-Sky B tried to take over Manchester United. I was heavily involved in that, put my own money into that. I can remember in 2004 when the Glazers started to rise and ultimately took over the club in 2005. But social media wasn't, wasn't really around then. There were, there were message board forums. You're now getting this sort of global kickback with immediate reactions. And it's not a black and white issue. There are so many shades of grey here for all parties. I'm not going to say now one is good and one is bad because it's nothing like that. You can try and unpick at both sides of it. I think that as journalists, as fans, we should be sceptical and we should uh, scrutinise whoever tries to buy Manchester United. My... Deep feeling is that actually Manchester United doesn't need to be bought by anybody because the club's big enough to stand on its own two feet. It generates enough profits, big fat profits, which the club traditionally used to expand the stadium, to bring the best players in. But the landscape at other clubs has, has been completely skewed by their ownership models. And Manchester United has by our ownership model with the Glazers. I like it too. United being with this swimmer, winning everything, and suddenly the Glazers take over and they put 20 bricks on your back. It's going to weigh you down, isn't it? Whereas other clubs received, I don't know, buoyancy aids? Flippers, Andy. Flippers. <laughs> here he is, swim, man, here. <laughs> Stockport Metro's finest. Yeah. Fourth in the north of England. Well, it was actually a good swimmer. <laughs> was he? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I wish. <laughs> I thought he was too scrawny. I've seen his gym selfies. <laughs> trust me, he was not scrawny, mate. In fact, he <laughs> was a bit of a big unit when he was a kid. <laughs> yes or no? Can confirm. We're now fat-shaming childhood lorry in the middle of uh, proper considered scrutiny <laughs> on Manchester United's takeover. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm waiting to see where this analogy is going with Andy. Is he, is he bringing it back round? I think we get the point, don't we, Andy, that the, the Glazers have taken away from what United could be at the same time as other clubs have had, you know, jet propulsion. And and really that is an act of vandalism, I think, by the Glazers in that you've now warped the conversation around what it needs to be an owner of Manchester United. When as I think we can all agree, they could sustain on their own. They, they have actually kind of kept pace with Man City in terms of spending. Okay, we might, you know, see with the Premier League investigation that, you know, not all was as it seemed uh, in terms of what Manchester City were spending. But by the same token, United have competed and actually they've probably just not spent it well enough in these years but it feels like the whole idea is that you have to have now a sovereign wealth fund own you to compete and well also if, if a sovereign wealth fund was to buy Manchester United or someone else with incredibly deep pockets the financial restrictions that are in place now you'd like to think are trying to stop 
people just putting endless amounts of money into clubs. Obviously, United have been hamstrung by the fact that they have paid huge, vast, vast sums on on interest payments, on dividends, on all sorts of things that they shouldn't over this time. And, you know, I think the last count, it was something like a billion and a half, wasn't it? Pounds that, yeah, that yeah. Manchester United had spent on the Glazers being their owners over the course of time. So you put that back into the club and, and the picture could be very different. Oh, yeah. Carl? The sale and the numbers we are hearing being quoted for this sale makes me sad because it, it is proof that Glazernomics works. Okay, the Glazers came in and, and bought Manchester United in 2004, 2005 with 250 million of their own money and, and a leveraged buyout. And now they're going to sell this football club for somewhere around the region of 6 billion, billion with a B. True. Um, it worked, right? Whenever this sale is done, members of the Glazer family are going to have a remarkable profit on their investment. 17 times, I think it is, if they get the asking price. Right. <laughs> Glazonomics works, or, or, or you know, and, and Andy's spoken effusively on this podcast about how that takeover should never have happened in the 2000s. And here we are. Football clubs are massively expensive. Manchester United are massively expensive. Like you say, it's quite difficult to get our heads around the numbers quoted because the amount of people who can reasonably afford Manchester United in its current state, who have six, seven, you know, four to seven billion burn in their back pocket to buy a football club with, I don't know, one to two billion extra to to make investments in infrastructure like you know like Old Trafford and, and Carrington that is a very small finite pool and that requires conversations with yes Qataris or um, Sir Jim Radcliffe and however this is being organized with JP Morgan or the Elliot Group investment these are people slash organizations who are worth billions and also probably spend millions making sure they don't have to pay tax on their billions. And everything they say about purchasing Manchester United should be scrutinised. And it can be very difficult to separate legitimate scrutiny of certain individuals, certain groups, from what other people have accused as uh, Brexit rhetoric or uh, Islamophobic rhetoric. And I'm saying... Everyone listening and everyone looking into, interested in Manchester United's takeover needs to do their research and their homework and needs to read beyond headlines and needs to read beyond just the flat statements of things being said. You know, if, if Sir Jim Ratcliffe's saying he wants to put the Manchester back into Manchester United, there should be follow-up questions. There should also be questions about you know, his interest in fracking and why he invested heavily in towards the conservative government to, to to help Brexit happen. There needs to be conversations about how Ineos continues to make their money. If the individuals looking to buy Manchester United from Qatar are coming forward with reassurances that they are not, in fact, linked to QSI and the group who also owns Paris Saint-Germain, that needs to be scrutinised as well. And I think Laurie's done very well with Matt Slater, with others, into looking into how that could possibly work. I think if the Elliott group tries making, you know, if, if their bid goes from option three to option two, there needs to be some really, really big consideration about how the Elliott group has held developing countries to account for really, really debilitating loans, right? I try not to bring my personal politics into this, but I, I, I don't think there's such a thing as a good billionaire. And anyone pretending to be a good billionaire, you've got to go... Mm, what do you mean by that? And why are you pretending to be a good billionaire to impress me? Because ultimately, the reason why Manchester United cost 
four to five to six to seven billion is because there are hundreds of thousands of Manchester United fans around the world and they're not likely to stop supporting Manchester United just because their best player has been sold, right? The value of Manchester United is not the Manchester United badge or Old Trafford. It is you, the listener, the Manchester United fan. And I think you as a Manchester United fan need to be doing your research and not take everything at face value that's being said at this current point in time. Yeah, I completely agree with that because, of course, the statements that have been made so far, they're not going to make statements that put Manchester United fans off. I mean, obviously, it's um, a technique that that's going to try and get people on side in the PR war of who's the favourite bid of Manchester United fans and who should be favoured first and so on. Um, Laurie, Adam Crafton's written extensively about Sir Jim Radcliffe's attempt to buy Manchester United and the background to that as well. And again, it's another aspect that, that deserves proper serious scrutiny isn't it for sure um also mark critchley did a really good piece on how he has owned uh, nice and uh, lucerne the swiss team and you know what what's happened there you know i think that's uh, worthy of, of scrutiny um and we'll, i think we've got more pieces coming up on sir jim ratcliffe as well and, and how he makes his money i think as carl touched on there you know politics personal politics they, they are now unfortunately inherent in <laughs> your, your football team I, I don't see but how isn't that you part can of separate. what's depressing about all of this in a sense yeah that yeah. it is so political that's that's what football's become now it's a it's a geopolitical tool and you know you look at the world cup and you know that was something that really in really entrenched and enhanced people's views on you know whether we should have it in qatar in a, in a winter world cup and some people might say well okay in that case then um, what's what what's what's the problem with Manchester United being owned by Qatar, you know, or individuals linked to Qatar? Um, you know, you've got Man City who have been owned by Abu Dhabi and they've had great success. You've had Newcastle now that are owned by PIF that are clearly very closely linked to Saudi Arabia. Part of the thing with all this, Laurie, is just the fact of how many layers there is to it. No matter which way you look in this entire debate, there are so many different aspects to unpick. And, and that's, I think, what makes it really, really difficult to have a proper conversation about this. Yeah, I hope that we can just have a, you know, a debate about it. I don't want questions about uh, different ownership structures to be drowned out by this kind of vitriolic response that we seem to be getting on social media. Um, I think in person, people are much more uh, amenable, aren't they, to having a, a kind of debate about the different issues. I suppose... I just think that a club like Manchester United, the, the success that it's gained and the, the global acclaim that it's had came through a kind of more organic growth. I know that they spent money on transfers under Sir Alex Ferguson, but it it, it, it built up. He he was there and they they, they failed at first, you know, and, and he, he kept at it. And eventually they got to that point where they were the champions and, and that, that felt great because it was a natural progression. I kind of have that... A, reservation about if Qatar take over if you know if, if Sheikh Jassim comes in and, and and puts a load of money into the club that any success from that point on would feel a little bit hollow it would it would change the dynamic maybe people will shout at me and say you're talking rubbish you know success is success to stop being small-minded uh you know there is uh, you know ultimately we're past that point now where you can say no to sovereign wealth funds because look at Man City look at uh, Newcastle but I do feel like there is still a conversation to be had here where we can actually say, no, can we just check ourselves and and think about what this would then mean for the sporting merit of Manchester United? And yet, clearly, the stadium is a big thing. The training ground is a big thing. They are going to cost a lot, a lot of money. Um, 
maybe there's only one solution to that. Um, but I do think that we can still have a genuine debate about what that would then mean for the emotion of the game. Because as Andy said, that being at a football match, that's the essence of what you want, right? From from following a football team, cheering on, having that connection with your players. And, and would it change if you had an ownership structure that, that felt like it was divisive? I think people want stuff now as well. Uh, that's another aspect of maybe modern life. Perhaps I'm going to sound a bit old now, but like people want the best players now. They want the best training ground now. They want the best stadium now. Yeah. And, and I get it in a way because we've had to watch other teams make improvements on those things. We've had to watch other teams attract players that Manchester United would have attracted in, in the past. We've had to watch stadiums be rebuilt uh, or built in the first place, improved upon, expanded. Uh, we've had to watch training grounds open. I, I go to Leicester and like look at their training ground. It's absolutely incredible. It's it's completely and utterly state of the art in, in every way that I've seen and I've been spoken to. And you're talking about a team who have only had moments competing at the top end of the Premier League table, not the 13-time Premier League champions. I can understand people's frustration. I, my my issue with it really is is why do you need it like now? Is it not better to um, or is it not okay to have a plan towards you having the best stadium again, the, the best training ground again, the best players again? Can you not work towards that in a sustainable and measured way, whoever owns Manchester United? And the other aspect that I think is beginning to sort of alarm some fans is the Elliott investment management side of things where actually it could be just about keeping the Glazers in control of Manchester United, but refinancing the way that the club's owned. That would definitely alarm fans. Part of the problem here is the lag, because the Glazers haven't invested properly, sufficiently into Old Trafford, into the training ground, this is why the discontent has built up. This didn't need to happen, by the way. Manchester United were profitable, were making good money. I was really proud that... The club expanded Old Trafford using profits. Martin Edwards was a former chairman. Very fans were very div- divided on him, but his the thing he was most proud of was all of those stands at Old Trafford were built by money from the fans invested into the club, and it became the best stadium in the country. Look at some of the awful other stadiums around. Look at how piecemeal Manchester City's main road was. There was no coherent long-term plan. And for decades, Manchester United, while not always being successful on the pitch, because this is football, that happens. No one's going to be successful all of the time. You can't see it coming when it does. You can't see it going when it does. And Manchester United are probably the world's biggest football club. And... I've often said one of the three biggest clubs in the world, but seeing that Barcelona game last week made me think United is significantly bigger than Barcelona in terms of the global appeal. And just listening to what Catalan journalists and different people around Barca were saying to me, United are absolutely huge, for better or for worse. For worse, because we're seeing some of the unsavoury reactions to some of the news that we've had in recent days. Because... The club is potentially hugely profitable, so you attract ultra-capitalists, the Elliott Group. I mean, you ask Manchester United's Argentinian players what they think of the Elliott Group. Because that country was held to ransom because they very, very aggressively bought government bonds when Argentina was on its backside. And I know Argentinian people, human people, working-class people, middle-class people, who lost all of their savings when the country went into meltdown. 
and moved abroad. So we're moving again into geopolitical issues and it, it so much of it is so unsavory. It's like some people just want success at any cost. Well, I'm sorry, there are costs. There, there are, there, there's a price to pay for this and there didn't need to be. But again, this is the glazers have, have, um, have, have contributed uh, to this. But another point Laurie made, United has, have actually spent a lot of money, just spent a lot of it badly. And I don't like the Manchester City model at all. I don't doubt that Pep Guardiola is a brilliant manager, but I think it is hollow. But Manchester United have been horrendous recruiters of top footballers over the last 10 years. A better run Manchester United, which we're now seeing, by the way, got a really good manager there. The executive team, I'm not hearing disastrous things about them like I used to do. Interesting in these comments, fan involvement was at the centre of it. But United fans hate each other. I wonder if you're going to get them all together. What good's going to come from it? They absolutely <laughs> despise each other. It's basically groups of millions of groups of mates who think everyone else is completely wrong. Yeah. Imagine putting someone in as, as you know, okay, we're going to get the fans involved. They, they absolutely despise each other. They haven't been consulted yet, have they, either Ian no. and Andy? They, ha they haven't no. actually had that kind of dialogue. And it's important. It is important. And, yeah, and I know that, uh, yeah, as Andy says, fan, fan groups are criticised. You know, we want more from them. We want more um, sort of, I don't know, overt statements. But they do have conversations, you know, behind the scenes that have brought, you know, I think a lot of good stuff. change. You know, you talk about the yeah. Stretford end, uh, you know, c corporate seats being taken out. Um, I mean, the one thing on this as I think you were alluding to Ian is that the Glazers could they stay after all this right like could is there any world where they actually don't relinquish the club and I think everyone's you know rain certainly are looking at you know a sale um the Glazers I think probably would ultimately like a sale but at the same time they want to sale it on their terms at their cost we're talking like six seven billion are is is Sheikh Yassim is Sir John Radcliffe's bid at that level I don't think they are yet so you know whether that negotiates down and, and you kind of get a solution somewhere along the lines. I, I don't know, but it isn't. I don't know. Just people that I speak to say don't totally discount them. Uh, you know, sticking around and that Elliot, as you say, the hedge fund uh, that have kind of offered their services, their finance to either the Glazers or a, a bid that kind of takes over is something to kind of be aware of. Okay, well, discussions are going to continue on this, no doubt at all. They'll continue on this podcast and everywhere else. There's lots of detailed analysis, lots of really, really interesting and informative pieces on The Athletic on every aspect of this Manchester United takeover. Remember, you can sign up now if you're not a subscriber for £1.99 a month for a year when you go to theathletic.com forward slash Pod. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, let's get back to the football then, because blimey, I said at the top of this podcast that we've got an extremely exciting week on the pitch because we need to preview Manchester United against Barcelona at Old Trafford. Andy, I'm going to come to you first. 
because we know we you split your time between Barcelona and Manchester. The last couple of weeks, especially. I mean, it's the Andy Mitten derby, isn't it, this? And United are really well positioned to go through. Got to know all the air stewardesses even better. This has just been fantastic. Brilliant game of football the other night. I know we did the podcast straight after the match, but I spoke to a lot of Barca fans in the in the, the days after, and they were buzzing like I was, saying it's so rare that a team comes to camp now and proper as a go with really good players. And this was the best game we've seen for a long time. And I was at back at camp now on Sunday for the Cadiz game, and it was like, oh, Barca are going to win another game 2-0. <laughs> and I was really, really bored, not least because I missed out on Carnival. All my family were at the carnival, and I'm sat there going, "Okay, there's an applause for Frankie de Jong and Gabby." I just, <laughs> but then you can't complain because you're getting paid to watch football, aren't you? Cannot wait for that second leg at Old Trafford. I cannot wait. I think it's um, so much anticipation. So many games do not live up to their hype. The game did um, the two all at, at Camp Now. Slightly favour Manchester United because. Barca are missing really key players, some of their best players. Pedri is a wonderful footballer. Gavi, that, that's like taking two central midfielders out of Manchester United for a European Cup final and expecting them to win the treble. I'm sorry, that actually happened. Um, don't write Barca off. Get behind your team on Thursday. And I've spoke to a few of the travelling fans. They're looking forward to coming over to Manchester as well, saying whatsoever like sunny every day, mate. Just take a T-shirt, you'll be sweet. What are the restaurants like? Absolutely <laughs> fantastic. You basically, you can't turn a corner for Michelin-starred restaurants. It's about €8 Euros as well for a main course. Can't wait for to hear the complaints next week. Enjoy yourselves, yeah, absolutely. Laurie, I love some of your social media from Barcelona. We sort of touched upon it in the podcast to preview the match, but going back to the scene of 1999, the ticket uh. story that you've told a few times, you had your picture taken in roughly the spot where you were back then as well. I mean, that must have just been a very special occasion because on top of that, it was a fantastic football match as well, wasn't it? And United, well, they should have won, actually. Let's let's get let's get sort of to the point. <laughs> That's They're in a strong position at 2-all, but they should have won, shouldn't they? They probably should have won, yeah. I mean, certainly Eric Ten Hag thought so uh, after the game. He, he thought they could have scored a, a couple more. Um, I think certainly Barcelona could have scored as well. So maybe 2-2, fair result. Um, and we'll, we'll do it all again, you know, at Old Trafford on Thursday night. Um, it was really nice being back there first time. I've been to Barcelona a couple of times, but not to the new camp for some reason. Or the camp now, sorry. Um, and uh, yeah, I did a, a, a quick thing with um, Sky Sports with Melissa Reddy. And, and it just so happened that actually I was stood in the same spot when we kind of looked at the, the camera angles. And my cousin's buzzing because um, a lot of people have suggested that he looks like Dennis Irwin. So um, he, he's, he's quite happy at the comparison. Um, so I, I saw him at the weekend and he's coming down for the Carabao Cup final uh, on Sunday as well. We've got like a little group of us. Um, obviously, I think I'll be doing the, the press side of things, but uh, a few tickets for, for my family. Um, so that'd be nice. Um, I always thought he looked a bit more like Ali McCoist. I'm going to say that uh, rather than Dennis Irwin. I don't know if they're kind of. Are we talking about Dennis Irwin and Ali McCoist when they were playing, or, or Dennis Irwin and Ali McCoist now? Because I'm not sure either of those comparisons are particularly favourable. <laughs> well, the, the picture is, is is of him from like 20 odd years ago, so I think it was oh, okay. Dennis Irwin when he was playing. What's right. wrong with Dennis Irwin? Just because you came seventh in Mister North Oldham in a modelling competition. <laughs> Good looking fellow, Dennis Irwin. <laughs> 
Well, he's just probably slightly older than Laurie's cousin, to be fair. It wasn't so much a comment on his actual look at more the age sort of aspect. Because how old's your cousin, Laurie? Yeah, good question. I think 74. <laughs> he's, in his, he's in his 40s. I think he's nearly 50, actually. Oh, okay, though. so it's not that different. Yeah, then, he's, all, he's a lot older than Well, Dennis Irwin's probably in his yeah. 60s. Anyway, thank you for that point, Andy. Carl, <laughs> um, let's talk about the actual like pieces on the pitch, because Andy's right. There's, there's going to be some key footballers missing for Barcelona. The sight of Sergio Busquets on the bench against Cadiz maybe makes you think that he might be ready to, to come back into the team to face Manchester United. But United have got players returning as well, notably Lissandro Martinez from that first leg. And there's options as well, I think, for Ten Hag too. Scott McTominay, of course, came on against Leicester, so he could be in contention. We wait to see if anyone else will be available. But he worked it out in that first leg, Eric Ten Hag, and he's got more options now to work it out again, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think Lissandra Martinez will probably come back in the starting lineup, and we might get our first look at Sabitzer next to Casemiro. Do you think he'll be preferred to Fred? Yeah, yeah. I think Sabitzer had a... Interesting. Pretty good game against Leicester City. He certainly seemed to enjoy playing next to Scott McTominay in the second half when McTominay came on. He was the whole... I can't see past the short sleeves and gloves at the moment, to be honest. Oh, I've, I've, I've always got a fondness for short sleeves and gloves. Although, I can imagine certain United fans see short sleeves and gloves and get bad flashbacks about Bastian Schweinsteiger. Oh, yeah, I didn't oh, even yeah. make that link. <laughs> so it must be a Bayern Munich thing then. Might have been. I've got a fondness for short sleeves and gloves. I think Sabitzer and Casemiro is a fun partnership because Sabitzer has more of the good Fred about him than the uh, the great unknowable that is bad Fred. Uh, and I think another quick question is obviously, where does Veghorst start? I'm going to assume he does start, but is he going to continue being the number 10 to collect the ball from long passes from David De Gea, or, or does he go, go up as the nine as Jaden Sancho or another comes in to help out with, with some other midfield stuff as well? So, but this is good. This is good. Ten Hag has legitimate options in a way that I genuinely didn't expect him to have at the start of the season. Exactly. And the option even to play Vout Veghorst in multiple positions is quite a development, really, isn't it? Laurie, you said at the top of the podcast, or near the start at least, that you actually quite enjoy watching Vout up there doing his bit in the number 10. What is it about him that you that you think sort of works, shall we say, in that role? It is, not, it's effective, even, isn't it? I'm not even sure. He doesn't score. <laughs> like I'm not even sure I still agree with that. I don't know. That's what he likes about him. Kindred spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had about as much success at Old Trafford as I did in that media game. Works uh, where, hard, doesn't it? Where, where Carl and I uh, managed to do ourselves disgracefully. Um, Carl was actually a lot better than me. I, well, that's I work hard. That's that's all I've got I've in my it, game. Mate. I've sort of run around a bit. Yeah, you do. You've seen it. Good. You blow Excellent. about the pitch like um, an empty crisp packet. <laughs> Uh, genuinely, that, oh, wow. that is an insult for Darren Fletcher that someone sat behind us about 15 years ago, stood up and shouted, and it's always ah. stuck in my head. It's a fantastic analogy and completely wrong. And Darren Fletcher was the reason why Manchester United didn't win the 2009 Champions League final. So I will take that comparison. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I still don't. I was sat next to Carl in the, in the stands uh, at Old Trafford uh, against Leicester, and we were sort of like perplexed a bit, like thinking he is playing number ten again, isn't he? Um, and then he did a lot of things good, and then he but it, the crucial element, putting the ball in the back of the net, he sort of seems to not quite get it right. But he is making the keeper make saves. I don't know. I, I just don't know what to think. But I'm kind of enjoying this journey. Um, it's mad that United have got someone from Burnley leading the line who got relegated last season. Um, in in these crucial matches, but you know, Eric Ten Hag, you know, he, he's the guy, and he, he, he nicked Andy's 
uh, rallying call, didn't he, at the end of the game, going off the pitch. You could sort of see the United fans responding quite loudly and he sort of Love wondered that. what was going on. He was sort of pointing and then, yeah, after the game, he, he basically just channeled Andy Mitten and said, we need you here on Thursday. Together we can do them. Um, but yeah, he's got he's got the brains and he's got a bit of you know a bit of edge to him as well. So uh, yeah, if he wants Val Vegas as number ten, then yeah, let's go with it. Yeah, he's copied Andy Mitten quite a lot lately, actually. <laughs> if you have a look at some of his choice of uh, of knitwear and now rallying cries <laughs> as well. I mean, he's, he's definitely got some inspiration to be to be more Mancunian. If you see him selling out and moving to Barcelona in a few years, you'll know exactly where he's got that inspiration <laughs> from as well. Um, Andy, <laughs> I, I get I guess this game as well. Um, this is just what we want at Old Trafford, isn't it? This is exactly the type of fixture. Okay, it's not at the stage we want. It's not even the competition we want necessarily. But these are the sorts of occasions that we want to be getting back to on a regular basis, aren't they? This is what we're building towards, or this is what it feels like United now under Eric Ten Hag are building towards, having this sort of thing on the regular. It's not just Barcelona. Look at the next games. You've got a cup final at the weekend, then the league match. Uh, an FA Cup game next week. Manchester United are still in four competitions and it feels wonderful. Brilliant. You go back a year, United was starting to fall apart. and They were out of four competitions this time last year, pretty much, weren't yeah, they? It was, it was around um, this time. Uh, unfortunate anniversaries. I remember coming out of Atletico Madrid away and uh, Russia had invaded Ukraine. It was that night when it happened and we're coming up to, to that now. I think United are getting better and more power to the manager if he wants to bring Valt Vegost in, if he wants to play you up front, mate, I'd have it because he just knows what he's doing. Yeah, I'd do a job. But if you think United were 12 points off the top of the league before the World Cup, now just five points off the top. I always, as well as doing the live league table thing, which is really enjoyable, I'd recommend it, especially when Man United go one up in a match, just go to the live league table. The world just seems a better place. But nine more points after 24 matches than at the same stage last season. I think the win rate is 72%. I think they're only nine points off their total from last season as well, actually, despite the fact that you know we're, we're only in, in February. Um, whichever way you look at it, it's been a huge, huge improvement. And it's just so important, Andy, that there are proper headlines to underline this silverware, You know, qualifying for the top four comfortably, getting to the latter stages of European competition. Yeah, the top four positioning is looking really good at the moment. Of course, Manchester United could collapse like last season. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the manager is is getting stronger and more emboldened, and I think the the players are really buying into what he's doing. So many of the players are finding form. It could actually get even better if you look how he's managed. Almost every decision is made, but the most recent one would be uh, Jadon Sancho looks like he's managed it absolutely perfectly and he could become a really important player for the rest of the season uh, it is encouraging for Manchester United that Newcastle United and Barcelona will be missing key players but they're both very good teams who've got to Barca top of the league in Spain their record against Manchester United is a very very good one and even though they'll be missing a couple of those key players the lads who they can bring in are still extremely accomplished footballers so good that we're talking about this so many different strands with travel it's non-stop it can almost tie you out everyone's talking now about Barcelona and three days later it's Wembley brilliant this is what being a Manchester United fan should be about being there at the big time I know it's only the Europa League but um, that Barcelona game I, I cannot wait for it. Yeah, I think we all agree with that. Right, we're going to leave it there. Seems like the perfect way to sign off ahead of that match on Thursday night. We'll be back with you after that game to review Manchester United's second leg 
against the La Liga, La, 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 La Liga leaders. Wow, that's quite difficult to say, isn't it? Good job I left that to the very end of the podcast. People normally sign off before now. Um, we'll be back after that game against Barcelona. We'll preview the match at Wembley against goalkeeperless Newcastle. And of course, we'll be back, whatever happens. I hope you've enjoyed today. I hope you found some of the chats informative, interesting. I echo the sentiments from the gentleman as well. Do your research. Have a look into these different people who are interested in buying your football club. It's very, very important. We'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Laurie. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Athletic.